0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. We're gonna be talking space uh, with our good friend Tony Rice, uh, NASA ambassador, also a contributor for WRAL and Raleigh. So uh, Tony is our resident uh, um, person that we go to and we have space questions. There's some really cool things going on uh, with this Mars launch. We also have some loon balloons. You may have seen some pictures floating around on social media over the last couple of days or weeks, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as well uh, throughout the program. But Tony, uh, we have this mission. I think originally uh, this Mars mission was scheduled to go off uh, June 20th, right around that date. It's since then been pushed back a few days. So uh, can you tell us a bit about the mission itself? Well, what are we trying to uh, accomplish uh, as we uh, head off to Mars?
1: So this is the um it was originally called the Mars 2020 Rover. And it's a follow on to the Mars uh, Rover you you would know as Curiosity. So it's about the size of a a minivan, a little bit smaller than that. And its purpose is to go out there and find basically what happened to Mars. Uh, It's going to work in concert with obviously Curiosity and and all the other, all the other uh, assets that are out there at Mars, the uh, orbiters that are, are studying the atmosphere that are, taking those fantastic pictures that we see of Mars. Uh, But it's a a very similar rover to Curiosity. It's using the same spacecraft bus. And that's the the body of the spacecraft, the wheels, the the mobility system, all the computers, all the communication systems. But uh, the real exciting thing about these spacecraft and about these missions are the instruments. So uh, there's a, I think of this as like Curiosity 2.0. It is, has a lot of some of the same instruments that uh, Curiosity did, but uh, they've been upgraded. Uh, They've got a little more capability to them. We've learned a lot as we've had Curiosity on the surface of Mars for so many years. We've also added a couple of new ones, and I'm I'm sure we'll get into some of the more exciting ones there, but the ones I know that the the one instrument, my favorite one, that I know is going to be your favorite as well, is called META, and it stands for Mars Environmental Dynamics Analyzer. And I'm really looking forward to META getting on the surface of Mars. It's about a 12-pound instrument. Um, it's chewing up a whole 17 watts of power. Uh, you have to really budget your power up there. Uh, Curiosity and this new 2020 rover are going to both be curi- or both powered by a, a, a nuclear power source. We don't have to worry about any of the solar panels getting covered in all that Martian dust and causing us problems there. Uh, but the deal with Mita is it's going to be capturing information about air temperature, uh, ground temperature, radiation we've got a dust sensor that's on there as well so we can help study those dust storms. Uh, if you saw the Martian with um, Matt Damon did a pretty good job of showing what dust storms can be like there. At the beginning of the the movie was a little fantastic and you know, we, we don't quite get wind speeds like that or at least we don't have enough, Uh, Volume in the uh, atmosphere to produce some of the things we're talking about there Uh, We're going to put relative humidity uh, we'll be able to to measure that as well. Uh, There's a thermal infrared sensor on there Um, And there's wind sensors as well and the wind sensors are kind of interesting. There is wind on Mars. We're getting uh, information about winds from another uh, Mission that is on the surface of Mars right now uh, called insight. It is not a rover. It is a lander so it stays stationary it can measure whatever whatever what atmosphere comes to it and the column of air above it. So we are seeing winds there um, that are, are a little bit higher speed than we expected. You wouldn't be able to feel them, though, because the, the volume of air there is is so little.
2: So, Tony, there's this new device that's coming with Perseverance that I literally just found about uh, in the last five minutes. So it's going to be some type of helicopter, drone, a deployment. Tell us about that and how that works in an atmosphere that's a lot thinner than ours.
1: Yeah, that's going to be the really interesting thing is how you get lift in uh, such a thin atmosphere. The Mars atmosphere is about a hundredth that of, um, of Earth's, so it's very, very, very thin. Sorry, not a hundred, a thousandth that of Earth's, very, very thin. Uh, but the the drone itself, the helicopter itself, has pretty wide blades, uh, and it's going to be spinning really, really, really fast. So don't think drone like the drones that we know here on Earth. Uh, It's not going to be sitting up there and hovering for a good amount of time. It's going to take hops. Uh, And its purpose, number one, is a technology demonstrator. Uh, It'll be the first time we've ever flown on another planet. Uh, That's pretty exciting unto itself. But it's not just a technology demonstrator. It's going to be providing valuable information to the team that is driving this rover. And yes, there are rover drivers. They sit in the... in California, they're sitting at home right now because they're able to VPN in and, uh, and talk to the rover that way. But uh, their technical term or their technical uh, title is uh, Rover planners, because they're doing exactly that. They're planning what drives need to occur during that day to put the rover in a position to do the science. So this helicopter is going to help out with that a little bit. Uh, it will, it's mounted on the underside of the rover. So after the rover lands and everything's checked out, uh, the rover will, uh, deploy the, the helicopter, we'll drive off of it, and then we'll be able to take the helicopter off and, and move it about. It's gonna serve as a form of scout for the geologists. It's gonna help us move ahead and, and, and make some good decisions about where to move the rover to in order to do some good science.
2: Now Tony, I have a question as far as like I've always wondered the signal, right? So this is; these are being operated remote control a lot of the times. So I know there's mm-hmm. some automated processes on site that, that the rovers would do to correct maybe a rock in the way or something. Um, but how long does the signal take to get to the rover as you're as you're steering it? Now the radio waves travel at the same speed of light, or I mean, what's the difference? Right. in, in um, right at light speed. How much time? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it varies uh, throughout
1: our year and the Mars year. Uh, Mars year is roughly about 18 months, um, so it, it's anywhere from about 10 minutes to more than 30 minutes. So when I I mention somebody that's driving the rover, you have this, you might have this picture in your head of a steering wheel and uh, a and a gas and a brake. Absolutely not that. It's sending commands uh, for the rover to act on at a later date.
3: And Tony, John, who listens to our audio podcast, sent in this question for you. He understands the mission is going to be taking samples of the Martian planet. How do those samples get back to Earth?
1: To be determined. (laughs) So um, there is going to be a caching capability where samples that are first studied by Curiosity are going to be packaged in a way that they can be picked up at a later date and brought back to Earth. Um, we're not quite ready to put boots on Mars yet. That's, that's a goal, but it's a goal that's pretty far into the future. Uh, as a step between uh, now and you know, putting boots on Mars, a robotic mission that could pick up those cash samples and bring them back. Uh, the, why not just go in and pick up random samples and bring them back? Why bring these? that have been studied by the the Perseverance rover, uh, by the 2020 rover, Uh, to be able to do additional study on something that's already been studied by a robot is just going to give us a ton of information that we can apply to other studies that have been going on there for years and years, on back into the Viking days, back in the 70s. So that's why it's being done that way. How it's actually going to happen, there's a lot of different ideas about that. One of the biggest challenges there is how you have enough energy to launch from Mars and get back to Earth. How do you do that? And there's different theories on how that might happen. Uh, Do you bring enough fuel with you to be able to get back? Do you um, use the Martian soil as a a source for for energy and and construct fuel that way? Lots of different ideas. It's, It's being worked on, but step one is to gather those samples and leave them behind so that they can be returned.
2: In our relentless pursuit for life on, on other planets, we, we look at water and, and potential for water. We've seen uh, pictures of icing on the poles, uh, a type of icing, uh, not, not as we would know it, but what is the evidence for water on Mars and maybe some of the past evidence that shows you there could have been water flowing? Has there been anything presented in, in some of the latest information?
1: Yeah, that's a, a great question. And the icing that you're seeing on the poles happens every Martian winter. Uh, And you can actually see it with a backyard telescope if you look at the right time. Uh, We see it on both the North and the South Pole. What you're seeing there is actually CO2 ice. It's actually carbon dioxide. And the poles get, uh, those ice caps on the poles, they get larger and they get smaller according to the season. Uh, And we can see that in Curiosity's um, air pressure sensors. Uh, As that carbon dioxide, uh, transfers into from a, a solid space into a gas phase. it adds to the atmosphere and we'll see atmospheric pressure go up during the summer months and then it precipitates down, it actually snows dry ice on the poles during the winter months when it gets colder. Uh, Mars has seasons because it has an axial tilt just as Earth has an axial tilt. It's very, very similar, um, but as far as evidence for water is concerned, it's really in the geology. Uh, the, the geology is, uh, it tells us the story of what happened in the past on Mars. Where we landed Curiosity uh, was an area that was formerly the bottom of a, a large river system, it was at the bottom of an alluvial fan. And that's you know, kind of a funnel shaped pattern. Uh, if you've ever seen satellite photos, color satellite photos, of the Mississippi River Delta, as it dumps out into the Gulf of Mexico. You see that triangle, uh, that's all that sediment that's been collected up along the Mississippi River. Well, that's where, that's the Martian version of, or we landed on the Martian version of that. It's all dry there now, we're not seeing evidence of liquid water, uh, but we're seeing the geologic evidence of it. So one of the very first photos that came back from Curiosity after it landed uh, was of these rounded pebbles. Those don't form round those are rounded as a part of a, a water process that's, um, that's picking up and, and moving them along and rounding them off. And we found lots and lots of that. So through study of the geology and the chemistry of those rocks as well, you know, that's what told us that it was freshwater, determined that the, um, uh, the area that Curiosity landed in was probably about knee-deep in water a couple million years ago. The, uh, uh, the idea that Mars was once a very different place and a lot wetter and perhaps a lot greener. Uh, that is one of the things that Curiosity found pretty quickly after its landing time.
0: Tony, uh, looking at some of the points here for, for the mission, uh, two of them kind of really piqued my interest. Uh, it says this is the first leg of a round trip to Mars. And then after that, it's also talking about how this can actually pave the way for future human missions to the moon and to Mars. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, every time we put something on another planet, we learn a lot about it. And the the road to putting boots on Mars, it's a long one. Uh, but even what we're planning on doing around the moon, coming up with the Artemis mission, is going to teach us a lot about that. Uh, being able to live potentially off some of the resources on the moon uh, will teach us a lot about that. We got to really understand the the chemistry and the the makeup of the uh, of the Martian service to to be able to have people
2: live there.
0: I think I think that's really interesting. You know, we've we've always heard about people going to Mars, but this actually could be could be some small steps for that. And also seeing uh, there's going to be like 19 cameras on this that we're going to be able to kind of follow along with with the mission.
1: Yeah, there's a bunch of HD cameras on, on Curiosity. We got even more on, um, on Perseverance. And I've mentioned the name a couple of times. I need to tell you the story about Perseverance. So, for the longest time, it was called the Mars 2020 rover. NASA's really terrible at naming things. Uh, you, you give NASA engineers and scientists the opportunity to name something, and they're going to give it an acronym, they're going to give it something boring. You know, maybe it'll be a backronym that actually spells something that you can pronounce. But the cool names, those always come from the kids. So Curiosity was named by a little girl in Iowa, who by the time it, uh, it launched, she was a lot older than that. Uh, she actually went on to be, I believe, uh, an environmental scientist. So um, she got a lot out of that experience. Perseverance was named by a young man up in Northern Virginia. And I was on the, um, uh, the team that helped review a lot of the Submissions that came in. They had to come up with a name and they had to come up with a, uh, a little, a couple of paragraphs about why they chose that. And I can't recall if I, I read so many of them. I can't recall if Perseverance was among that. Uh, but uh, some of the ones I read were were pretty out there. Uh, I'm, I'm glad they picked Perseverance. We, we tend to call it Percy. So if you hear talking about the Percy Rover, that's what we're that's what we're talking about.
0: Speaking of Mars, I know you run uh, a Mars weather page on Twitter. Uh, I know you kind of keep up with some of the stuff. So we thought it'd be kind of cool to tie in Mars weather, your your Twitter page. What all you monitor? How do you get that information? How how does that? How do you provide a Mars weather forecast and observations?
1: So we, we don't forecast yet. We're we're hoping to have enough uh, data here one day that we can start having a forecasting product. Uh, we'll certainly need something like that once we get those boots on Mars. Uh, but uh, right now it focuses on the InSight uh, mission. It's pulling data down close to daily. Um, there's a lot of data that has to come down, and uh, unfortunately the weather data sometimes gets pushed to the back. If there's images or things like that, the, the science team needs right away, especially when we were working with InSight trying to get a temperature probe uh, to finally be pushed into the, uh, uh, pushed into the Martian soil there. Uh, I think everybody that's ever put a spade into the ground in the Carolinas knows what that clay is like. So uh, it was dealing with some of that, that same problem up on Mars. Uh, those images that were um, helping them understand that problem, those took precedent. Uh, but anyway, we do see uh, data come down from InSight, uh, and that is delivered through the same mechanism that all those pictures are delivered through. It's called the Deep Space Network. Uh, generally, uh, most of these both of the, the rovers and this insight mission have the ability to communicate straight back to Earth, but they don't tend to do that. Uh, they tend to uh, upload the images and other data every time an orbiter goes over and that orbiter acts like a router and store and forward that information once it sees Earth again. It, it, it's a little faster that way and there's a little more bandwidth, uh, but we see that data come down. I know she just popped that up. So we see um, uh, temperature data, uh, we see air pressure, I find air pressure to be some of the most interesting there, uh, and then we see uh, wind data as well. So the last one that came up was from Sol 566, and Sol is a, a day on Mars, and that equates back to uh, the 29th of June, It's the last time we saw something from it. Um, as you can see there, the, the low was 25, which is, or, I'm sorry, the high was 25, the low was 126 below zero, and these are both Fahrenheit. And uh, each day on this Mars weather Twitter, it goes and randomly picks a city somewhere, and Clayton just happened to uh, to be picked up there Uh, last time it was doing a comparison. So you can see the comparison there. But again, the most interesting comparison in my mind is the the pressure. So you know we're seeing um, about you know 1,012 hectopascals, which I think equates to millibars. You guys keep me honest there. That's, that's what y'all speak in, um, yes. and that on uh, on Mars is about 7.7 hectopascals. So that's one of our biggest challenges on Mars is the lack of atmosphere. It's just really, really, really thin there, and it continues to be stripped away by the solar winds. And that's not a, something that we're going to be able to correct anytime soon, or perhaps ever.
0: So I guess there's really so, no wind chill there. I mean, you know, I'm looking 25 degrees with 37-mile-per-hour wind gusts. That's- not really a wind chill there
2: then <laughs> yeah yeah not too bad we do see temperatures go above freezing there it that does is. happen yeah so tony um y- y- i mean obviously you're not using tricup anemometers or rm young's i mean <laughs> how how is this how is wind speed captured is it, is it using like venturi effect or are you you're con- consolidating the air into a point or how is that measured exactly
1: so the thing to look up is an instrument called a hot dice it is uh, a, a couple of, you know, basically electrodes that are exposed out there and are, are measuring differentials. They are without moving parts. That's really, really important when you've got a, a, a robot out there that you can't go service. There is no Home Depot on uh, on Mars to go get spare parts.
2: Well, you said one last thing. You kind of mentioned that it does get above freezing on Mars. I wonder if you could just real briefly speak to... The general temperature range. How cold does it get in winter? How warm does it get in summer?
1: Now yeah, we're talking around negative 200 Fahrenheit as well with the lows and during the summer most of the time we're talking uh, in the uh, uh, average temperature there is you know hovering around
2: negative 80 negative 100. I just That's think low. it's cool. I just think it's cool You have a mesonet on Mars We do We got two of them now about to put a third I've heard that there's a team already being picked to, to possibly go to Mars by as late as, what, 2028 or 2030? Is that correct? I will make no comments
1: on when we're going to Mars. You're not going to trick me into that. <laughs> I had to try. I had to yeah, try. There's a lot that needs to be done, and each one of these missions, be they robotic or be they human um Human up to the International Space Station, or once we get Artemis off the ground and have a gateway to the moon. Each one of those, it may not seem like it's getting us closer to Mars, but we learn something from each one of them that can be applicable. And when that actually happens, I hope it happens soon, but it's a long road.
3: More with Tony Rice when the Carolina Weather Group continues after this short break. Tony, shifting gears, one of the things that I spotted on Flight Tracker this week, and I think several of the people here in the Carolinas have, were alongside all of the little cute icons for airplanes, these circular balloon icons for the Loon Balloon Project tell us about it. Uh, I understand you're familiar with it. And I think it caught a lot of us uh, flight trackers off guard, maybe a little bit, but also people screaming UFOs in the sky as these things were passing
1: overhead. There was a little bit of that wasn't there? Yeah. um, It's something that I got to learn a little bit about the other night. Um, So in addition to uh, talking with you fine folks, I've got about 300 350 meteorologists around the country that I'm in contact with on a regular basis. I try to give them information about the uh, what's visible in the sky, usually planets, usually comets, meteor showers, things like that. Uh, but I am perfectly happy to get a what's this thing in the sky question when it's something in our atmosphere. And that's what happened, uh, I forget what, what day was it, was it Tuesday night? Um, uh, yeah, that sounds... Maybe, yeah. maybe
3: Monday. I mean, depending on where you were, right? These things went right over Greensboro, down towards Fayetteville, then out towards Charleston. So it was kind of and a day. I,
1: I, I first got looking at these things. It was Tim Buckley at WFMY in, in Greensboro. I get a text from him. he says, there's this white dot in the sky. What, what, what do you know about it? What? And I looked at it and immediately thought it was a balloon. Uh, an unmoving white dot in the sky, especially that high up is going to tend to be a, a balloon. It's so high up, it doesn't appear to be moving at all. And these balloons are operating with between 50,000 and 60,000 feet. So as you mentioned, as part of the Project Loon, we, we came to understand, um, which is a, a project that is, I want to make sure I get the, um, the relationship correct here. Google and Loon are subsidiaries of the same parent company, which is called Alphabet. Alphabet. Okay. It's all business spin-off nonsense but you know, anyway uh, they're looking to provide as, as I understand it uh, internet connectivity in areas that that don't get it which I think is great um, I think they're they're pushing to have like one megabit um, yep. uh, ability there's an antenna that you have to have outside and it's you know going to be a network of balloons mm-hmm. you know not unlike SpaceX's uh, Starlink project that talk to each other and and serve as an uplink-downlink network. But as I understand it, they're in a a testing phase. I think their launch site is up in northern Arizona somewhere. I'm sorry, northern uh, Nevada. And these particular balloons that floated over the Carolinas, there was four that were visible here around the Triangle area and up on the Triad around Greensboro, they were visible there as well. Uh, If you think about 50,000 feet and you think about that circle that you draw around something like that, uh, it's visible for a, a good amount of space. So um, we, we dug into it. It's funny that you saw it on flight radar first because everybody else saw it in the sky first. You know, we go <laughs> outside <laughs> from time to
3: time. We didn't get the direct uh, overhead pass here in Charlotte.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, you did have one float a little bit near you. There was one that went on, on out over Asheboro and uh, I'm sorry, Asheville. Uh, out over Cherokee and ended up in uh, Alabama the last time I saw it. But the ones that we saw around Greensboro, as I understand them, they floated out uh, directly south uh, off the coast of uh, Charleston, and ultimately Jacksonville. Uh, but I went and, and looked just out of curiosity. Once I found out that they were trackable through flight radar, I uh, wrote a little script that went up, up to uh, use one of the APIs and one of those radar tracking sites, or those flight tracking sites. I found 32 of them around the world. Um, wow I found actually 33 over Australia, the Congo, Kenya, uh, Zambia, Peru. I'm looking at my list here right now. There's a bunch out east of Madagascar and went um, off Peru. And then we had the, the couple here that had floated down from Canada down across Ohio, West Virginia. Um, and into the Carolinas. Right. Yeah. They could be
3: pretty scary if you, if you don't know what they are. Um, I had one other question, and then it sounds like Shay has one, too. I'm curious, Tony, in your reading, besides the application of using them to provide Internet to rural places that maybe aren't tethered on the ground, have you seen any discussion of an application to use them in storm response when a network might be wiped out due to a natural disaster?
1: I believe they actually used them for that purpose, Um After I want to say it was in 2017, but with that pair of storms that went over Puerto Rico, they did some releases from Puerto Rico. Um, If you go on one of the the flight tracking websites, I think it might have been flight radar 24 don't quote me on that, but there's a blog post on there about them tracking many of these things uh, during some of those storm responses uh, and, and providing that kind of connectivity to uh, folks that you know they don't have they may not have power but they probably have a way to charge phones to figure out how to do that it takes a little while to get that infrastructure back up uh, for cellular service so being able to do that with a balloon is, is pretty incredible
2: yeah I, I would agree with that um, Tony I know that when some of our Mets at Weatherflow we, we met and talked about it several years ago when, when Google was partnering with them now they're partnering with HAPS mobile and um, they provide LTE connectivity to these countries, these third world countries, there are other countries that, that lose connectivity during natural disasters. Peru, two thousand nineteen, was a prime example of where Project loom was used, utilized to get LTE connectivity for authorities to get their internet settings back up, and for folks to get, um, you know, some um, LTE receptions on their phones and whatnot. So it, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. I didn't know that there were that many balloons, but I know that they started this off back in two thousand thirteen where they did their first test flight around the world. So things have kind of progressed over time. Do you see this as being a permanent solution?
1: I I don't know. Not my area of expertise, but I I think it's great that uh, we're able to provide that kind of functionality there. One concern I've got, though, is that these things are helium-based. And helium is something that is in short supply right now. I mean, if you were to go to one of the party stores and try to get helium balloons, you probably couldn't do it. Uh, helium is a, a very important gas in in the space industry. Um, it, it's used for, for pur- cleanly purging uh, cylinders and, and uh, spheres and things like that. Uh, so we, we need it for lots of different things. I hope they can find another lifting gas other than helium because um, it, it is a neat and, and useful project. Um, but, yeah, I, I hope they don't use up too much helium doing it. One other thought on it, too, is... You know, while we're up there uh, hanging around for, for days and days at a time at fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 feet, it sure would be nice to get some weather instruments up there, too, some atmospheric instruments, and be able to send some of that data down from that close to the stratosphere.
2: Sure. I know Boeing's doing that with the unmanned uh, unmanned craft that, that flies for weeks and months at a time on solar energy. And I know, I think when I read on Loon's website that they have partnered, their partnership with HAPS Mobile, um, they have test flight they've done all their new or they've rolled out their new unmanned craft that goes out so that may be the solution to what they're looking for instead of having balloons anymore they're going to have unmanned uh you know planes going up that just circle a of, circle around we've
1: lost a lot of data from uh the grounding of uh commercial airliners too during the i mean the covid situation it's amazing how much data we were getting from those you know, that's closer to 30,000 feet, but um, it it really filled in a lot of those gaps that the radio songs were were providing.
2: In the past, we've talked about the radio songs that you just mentioned. Um, Could you maybe compare and contrast uh, these loon balloons with a typical weather balloon? Because they have very different lifetimes, obviously, and different purposes.
1: Different lifetimes, quite a bit larger, and uh, if you find the, the images of the Loon launch site, I was looking at that the other day, uh, they got some permanent structures out there and they're building some larger ones as well, just to be able to handle launching these things because they are so significantly large and they do get much bigger as they go up into the, the atmosphere uh, and uh, the air pressure goes down. Uh, so uh, most folks that I, I saw report them or, or, or uh, share pictures of them, describe them as looking like big jellyfish. Uh, it's a kind of a silvery looking material very very large the, the it, it's not as spherical as a weather balloon looks uh, those are uh, you guys are the experts here i think they're they're made of some sort of a latex material but it's very opaque where these are almost like translucent uh, appearance they're much much larger and uh they the the volume of um uh, of lifting gases that they put in there is very, very different, too.
2: So these balloons don't explode at 70,000, or they aren't even meant necessarily to go up to 100,000 feet, like a weather balloon?
1: They aren't. They hang out between um, uh, 50,000 to 60,000 feet. Right. I think a lot of what the research is doing right now is to understand how the steering winds up there work, uh, how how viable this is to provide, how wide a coverage that they can provide, um, uh, you know, how the, the jet stream, changes in the jet stream and, and other things like that are going to affect their, their coverage. It will be interesting to see what comes out of it. And as you mentioned, we can go on these flight tracking websites and, and look at them. Uh, if you go in and you enter HBAL and a three-digit number, uh, you might just find one.
0: Well, Tony, we certainly appreciate you being with us tonight to talk about the Mars mission and the loom balloons, and uh, we definitely appreciate your time. If, if folks want to follow you again on Twitter, um, how can they do that?
1: So my, uh, my personal account is RTPHokie, H-O-K-I-E, and if you are interested in Mars weather, uh,
0: the Mars WX report. You can also find you on WREL as a contributor and the Weather Brains, right? You're still doing the uh, recorded version? Still doing
1: the recorded version. It's, uh, uh, every Monday night we're, we're putting that out, and I, I try to put something different out every week that's usually space-related, and every once in a while we'll, we'll add in some some other weathery stuff in there too. Well,
0: Tony, we certainly appreciate your time, and if you're watching tonight and you want to know more about the Mars uh, launch, we'll probably be airing those uh, towards the end of the month uh, as we get into uh, with our friends at NASA TV. I'm sure we'll be doing some uh, more events surrounded by that uh, mission and that launch. So stay tuned with that. And uh, we appreciate you watching the Carolina weather group until next time. We hope you have a great evening and uh, we'll see you on the next uh, Carolina weather group episode.